America is experiencing something we don't often hear about in the news: a supply chain crisis. Did you know that a supply chain crisis will get worse before it gets better? This ominous prediction is based on something called phantom ordering. Hey there, newspeelers! Today is October twenty-two, two thousand twenty-one, and this is Adele with the Peel Dot News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy! Sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and let's get into it. When was the last time you worried about America's supply chain? Seriously, did you think of our supply chain, say, two years ago, before COVID? Nah, that's the real answer, isn't it? Of course, back then, as in now, some in government and major industries did, in fact, question our over-reliance on foreign sources for vital supplies, such as computer chips, which are particularly important for. Our national security, and some politicians pushed this issue much further, suggesting that we should repatriate our supply chain, which presumably means no more manufacturing of American goods in China. But other than these examples, our supply chain was not a topic on the minds or lips of the general population. This year, however, in addition to the usual hustle and hurly burly of Christmas shopping. We Americans will probably stress over whether or not that particular gift for that particular someone will even be available on time. The impact of current supply chain crisis, however, is much more comprehensive than just Christmas gifts. And don't get me wrong, Christmas toys are in fact important for our economy and for our sanity. But to better understand the far-reaching impact of supply chain and supply chain's history, we spoke with Mr. Yossi Sheffi, who is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Sheffi is the director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, and also the director of the MIT Supply Chain Management Program. He has written many books, including a 2020 book titled. The new abnormal, reshaping business and supply chain strategy beyond COVID-19, and a 2021 book that was published just this week, titled "A Shot in the Arm: How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converge to Vaccinate the World." Professor Sheffi has advised many governments and leading manufacturing, retail, and distribution enterprises, and he has also founded and co-founded. 
five successful companies. Links to Professor Sheffy's academic homepage, which lists his research and provides information for his many publications, projects, and awards, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Sheffy and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Sheffy, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. You know, in our daily lives, we Americans hardly ever think of supply chain. You know, you order a product, it arrives, or you just physically go to a store and you buy it, right? But now suddenly supply chain is big news. And even our president talked about it last week, sir. So I have many questions, obviously, to ask you. That's the purpose of this podcast. But before we do that, uh, I want to get its definition out of the way. What is supply chain? I, I assume that it's more than trains and trucks and transportation that's so obvious to us ordinary people, right? Oh, I'm also an ordinary person. <laughs> I've been studying supply chain for, for many decades. Me to us lay people, not experts <laughs> such as yourself, sir. <laughs> point taken, point taken. <laughs> I've been studying supply chain for decades. And, uh, well, the big change is, of course, that until January, uh, till 2019, basically, or December 2019, people used to ask my wife, what's your husband doing at MIT? And she used to say he's doing research on supply chain. And they say, what is that? Exactly. Um, yeah. A few weeks ago, my wife went to Whole Foods where, where she does the shopping and several items were not there. So she asked the 16-year-old clerk, what's going on? He said, you know, we have supply chain problems. So that's kind of where, where we went. <laughs> Nobody knowing what it is to everybody feeling the pain. Exactly. So let me explain. Supply chain include the whole. By the way, it's a. It's not the right term. It's a simplifying term called supply chain because it's really supply networks. So Sus supply networks. That's the better term. It's the more accurate term. But we use okay. supply chain in order to explain what it is. So when you have when you build a product, let's say an automobile, there's a a, a company that builds the automobile basically on the assembly plant. Only they, they put a kit together like Lego. And, but there are parts. It's made of parts that are made by suppliers. Those suppliers have their own suppliers. And they, so somebody makes carburetors and the carburetor needs spark plugs. And the spark plugs have you know, metal parts and uh, plastic parts and other parts. And those come from some mine. So there's a whole chain, if you want, of people behind people, behind people, behind companies, behind companies, mm -hmm. behind companies who actually involved in making a product. Product come, think about it, they start in one of two places. The other start in the agricultural field or in a mine. That's, that's for product. If it's food or, uh, you know, it, it starts in agriculture. If it's a, a product, it starts in the mine. There's some, I, so think about how many companies are involved from 
getting some, um, let's say, um, for mining some material until it ends up as a computer. There's a lot of companies involved in this. Each one making part. If, making if part. we get that basic agriculture and mining, then the supply chain indeed gets really long, right? It, and it is long. And furthermore, why do I say it's a, it's a network? Because if you build an automobile, for example, or even a toy, even a, let's think about automobile, there are many, many supply chains because you have supply chain of steel and you have supply chain of uh, uh, various items, technologies, of, of tires. Of, each one of them has its own huge supply chain of suppliers and their suppliers, sub-suppliers. A company like, um, say, take a contract manufacturer like uh, Flex or j they have tens of thousands of suppliers. And this is just what's called first-tier suppliers, the suppliers that give something directly to them. Those suppliers have their own multiple suppliers. That's why it's a network that spreads like this. So I deduce from what you just shared with me that it seems like you prefer the term networks over chain when it comes to supply chain versus supply yes. network because it seems to have a non-linear character to it, right? It's, a, it's not so much it's non-linear. Linear mathematically is a, is a little different <laughs> term. It has a thing about as a tree structure. Tree structure. Suppliers okay. and their suppliers. However, each if you follow each one of these strands of the tree, it's a chain. So yeah. because suppliers, but each one of them, each product have actually multiple suppliers, not one. But if you follow just specific items, you can get, you can get from the computer on your on your desk to the mine that uh, makes one one part of one product. This is sort anyway, of the, this is the thing we never think about, right? Of course. Let me just say that the, the when you talk about the trucks and the trains and the airplanes and the warehouses, this is the connection, the connective tissue. These are the things that move from one supplier to another supplier. But the basic supply chain is, com is compri uh, comprises of multiple companies, each make product for the next one in the chain. So it's it's a combination of pairs of supplier uh, um, and uh, no, a buyer-seller, 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 move along the supply chain. So now that we have a supply chain or supply network, we're using yep. your phrase, sir, uh, crisis, how far-reaching is the impact of what we're experiencing? Uh, am I just worrying about my daughter's Christmas Legos? As you mentioned, Legos, actually, that's what we're getting her. So is that it, or is it far more reaching inflation economy? Far more reaching than that. It's, in fact, uh, at this point, I think it become worse before it gets better. And it also depends a lot on what the government does. Why do you say it gets worse before it gets better? Because we started with shortages because of COVID and then they, people started hoarding material. Now companies are doing this because they're afraid they're not going to get their parts. and They are starting to overorder order what we call phantom ordering because they know they're not going to use it, but just, just in case you know, yeah. Yeah. they're ordering more. Just like households were, were hoarding toilet paper during the height of the pandemic. Companies are now trying to hoard chips, trying to hoard, you know, aluminum, whatever they can. 
just because they're afraid that there may be the crisis may linger and they may be out of basic materials, right? They're afraid also that their supplier will start doing, they're doing already, will start allocating, which means suppliers will start saying, okay, we can't have, we can't supply everything that you want. So we'll give you 50% of what you order. Companies look at this and say, okay, so I'll order twice what I thought I need. <laughs> and, and, and you must, so anyway, it, it creates huge uncertainty and fluctuation in the supply chain. But why am I, this is kind of the first order effect. Now we're starting to see second order effect. Second order effect, okay. Second order effect have to do with now inflation, the increased uh, power of workers, increased power of unions, everybody demanding more, which means we will have more inflationary pe pe pressure and more shortages. People have money in their pocket because the government gave them a lot of money. They, some of them didn't have to pay rent. Uh, they couldn't spend during the pandemic. They couldn't go to the movie. They couldn't go to restaurant. People have money in their pocket. So now they are all buying stuff and uh, money is, is burning in the pocket. And why am I saying depends on the government? Because without government intervention, my guess is sometimes middle of next year, we'll start seeing equilibrium at a higher prices. Prices will be higher. Equilibrium start uh, getting big with one proviso. If we will have the Bernie Sanders, you know, five, six, whatever you want, trillion dollars come the economy, <laughs> yeah. all bets are off because demand will be even higher. And But supply cannot grow like this. Supply has to do with capacity of factory, capacity of ship. It's, it's physics. It cannot grow. It can grow a little bit. You can put another shift on a, a, a manufacturing plant, even though it's hard now because you don't have workers, but it cannot grow as fast as you can increase demand by just flooding the market with money. That so point I, is fascinating. So you're suggesting that, and we're not getting into politics. I appreciate this. No, uh, it's, not, it's not a political statement. It's no, a it's not. Exactly. It's not a political statement. In fact, I wish politicians will have system thinking and they can realize that one thing affects another and nobody does, you know. For example, I can understand when people, when the, the United States infrastructure is pretty decrepit compared to other, some other country. Unfortunately, you yes. To, you need to invest something. But the question is how much, how targeted it is, where it is not just spread money around. The same thing with the social program. I understand that people who are hurting and they should be helped. But do it mean tested, doing just for people who are really unemployed, be very targeted and smaller. So you help the people who need help and don't flood the market. This is really not a political statement. It's just a supply chain worry. That's all. No, I, and, I, and I appreciate that. I 100% agree just to sort of uh, distill what you were sharing with me. What you're saying is that injecting large sums of money into trillions of dollars may actually flood the market with cash. Uh, on the other side, we don't have the supply for these people to actually buy the things they want. So inflation is going to go higher. Right now it's at 5.8%, it may even increase. It may even, it may even increase. And to me, the crux of on June 16, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Powell, mm -hmm. made a statement that floored me. He made a statement. You. Okay. He says, I always knew, I, I'm just paraphrasing. I okay. always knew that the, it's easy to increase demand. I never thought about the supply side. 
And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> the head of the Federal Reserve, talk about supply demand, that's like not economic 101, that's economic 99. I mean, it's just... Oh, wow. Really? I mean, wow. so... I understand. The problem is we have a government by pressure group and interest group, so everybody looking at, at what they want to do, the government trying to respond. And... But not understand that you cannot respond in one area. For example, let me give you one quick example. Please you do. Look, you look at uh, Newport Beach or you look at uh, somewhere in some other place. You look on the hill and you see all these ships and say, what the hell is going on? Well, the trick is, even now that they start working 24-7, it's not going to solve the problem because you don't have enough trucks. Why don't you have enough trucks? Because you live in Southern California. You know that the California Environmental Board, whatever it's called, uh, won a lawsuit, and the ports can have trucks that are only less than five years old. So immediately, oh. immediately you got all the small truckers who could not afford new truck out of the equation. That's one. California has another rule that by 2030, all the trucks that go into the port have to be electric. Guess what it does? All the current truckers are not going to invest in new truck until 2030 because they don't want to be stuck with trucks that are not allowed to do the work. So you have limited amount of trucks right now. There's a, a lack of investment. And I understand that people want to breathe nice air. So do I. But politicians have to start understanding that there's no free lunch, that you have to, to do some kind of um, balance. and. I'm all for environmental law. I'm all, but of course, other, of course. Uh, if people would be asked, environmental law or Amazon the delivery in two weeks instead of one day, what would your answer be? Uh, uh, one day, but <laughs> <laughs> sure. or, or, or higher prices of everything. But people are not presented. People think it's only that you can have your cake and eat it too. Okay, we'll get all this, all this regulation. And it will be great. We'll have cleaner. And the everybody did become cleaner. It's not that it didn't work. It worked. But it's a... But it has unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Exactly. So at least, this I wrote about in several books in the past, the government should have a rule, should have the ability in case of an emergency to discount a lot of existing rules. For example, change the hours of service time. The truckers can drive more than so many hours. You mean government can do that by fiat? Yes. Yes, by executive order. They can do many of these things by executive order. Now, I don't know about environmental law in California because, look, I'm not a political uh, political analysis major. I don't know the difference between what the state allowed to do, what the feds. But I think in case of emergency, the feds can you know, overrule anything. They, they probably can. Maybe in the, uh, if I have the pleasure of doing another episode with, with you, maybe we bring in a um, constitutional law professor yes. from, uh, from, from, from Harvard. <laughs> that would be a very good conversation. Uh, professor Sheffi, have you been contacted by any governments uh, when, when, when they do this? How much do they, um, like, have you been contacted by uh, the federal government currently for, for the current yes. crisis? Yes, I'm sitting on several... A group meeting group and the advisory board that tried to deal with the current uh, uh, crisis. I should say that 
I love everybody. The nice people try to do the right thing, but there are, and many of them are economists. And I try to explain- Are economists. Economists. Yeah. Economists, of course, have their place in the world, but this is not, this is not a big micro macroeconomics issue. This is come down to the port and look at the details. Look at the details of the contract between the aisle, you know, the uh, the longshoremen and the uh, in the terminal. Look at the rail contract. Look at the warehouse. Look at look at what's going on in the nitty gritty detail because that's that's where the problems are. We don't need thinkers. We don't need doers that go and get some empirical information, right? Uh, absolutely. And and to be to be fair here, the, the Biden administration is concerned about it, of course, for political reasons. Can, of course, yeah. Petrified that people will not have stuff for 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 Christmas, and the and and the prices are going up, and they're afraid that the you know inflation will start. Inflation, by the way, if you look at the history of inflation, is done by expectation. If people expect inflation, exactly. inflation happens because they're starting to spend more and more because they're afraid the money will be worth less in the future. So they're spending more and more and, and in fact feeding inflation. We see it now. That's what's happening as we speak. Go but, buy your house before it goes even higher, the price. Exactly. Yeah. Buy a car before it goes even higher. Exactly. We just buy bought a car, I know. Before it goes, before <laughs> yeah. it goes even higher. So um, People are doing this, and it creates even it feeds the whole inflation expectation. It, it so does. I, I was very surprised six months ago when Powell said this inflation is transitory. Now they're changing the tune. They, say, they really are. Yeah, they're saying that maybe it's not. Professor Sheffy, why don't we take a short break and then talk about your new book uh, that happens to be highly relevant to our topic today. Professor Sheffy, our podcast today is quite timely because of its subject matter. Supply chain is in the news, but also because of your new book is out today. Am I, am I correct? Yes, I have a new book out today. Wonderful. And the title of the book is A Shot in the Arm, How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converged to Vaccinate the World. Yep. Um, the, the, the title gives a hint of your focus, but why don't you please tell us the d- more details about what this book is about and why did you write it? You're quite busy. You've been writing several different books. Why this book? Uh, why now? Okay, so I am. Uh, I'll start a year ago mm-hmm. in March. I was uh, right when the pandemic hit. Right when the pandemic hit, I yeah. said, "I'm living in the biggest change in supply chain in my lifetime." So I, because you know, factories were closed, airplane couldn't fly, shipped in the container, in the containers already. So I sat down to document what's going on, and uh, it took me six months to write a book. It came out in October, called "The New Abnormal." Um, it talked about supply chains during during the pandemic, basically. And that was your last year book. That was my last year book. Yes, abnormal. Yes. But the good, the, the what happened is, as I was finishing that book, uh, people were working on the vaccine, and to me it was fascinating, because at the, if you recall, in the third quarter or so, when the end of third quarter, my, my book came out, uh, we started getting hint that the vaccine may come, may may be real. Because until that point, I thought it's all hype. The government is trying to make us feel good. And uh, 
Nobody that I talk to believe that can vaccine can be done in uh, 10 months. Or, or Pretty darn fast, huh? It was beyond anybody's dream. Both yeah. the vaccine and the efficacy and how good it was, especially the mRNA vaccine, the, the you know, Pfizer and Moderna. It was scientific miracle. Um, so I, so at that point, so, so the vaccine came out was it January, March this year. So in March, I started to say, okay, I'll have to document another day. <laughs> how, what happened? <laughs> to me, it was fascinating because I got to speak to some of the scientists, the Nobel laureates who developed the original science that led to these vaccines. People like Phil Sharp at MIT was a Nobel. Oh, that's so exciting. People like Bob Langer, who's uh, 40, some companies started in this business. People like Katie uh, uh, Carrico, who, who is vice president at the, uh, at the, you know, the German company that works with, uh, and with Pfizer, uh, BioNTech. BioNTech, a, yes, yeah. It's a German company that actually developed the vaccine. Pfizer is just making it and distributed it, but they did the science. And all, everybody says she's the next Nobel laureate in this, in this area. I got to talk to a lot of people. I got to talk to uh, Moderna. The Moderna plant is behind my office. So it's, <laughs> I could get some people from Moderna uh, to talk to me. But it, it was just interesting. I've got you know, people from Johnson & Johnson, which I know. Uh, so for me, it was, first of all, interesting. I learned about the science. It's not my area. Biochemistry and you know, microbiology is not my area. But I learned a lot. A crash course here. A crash course, which yeah. is the whole chapter one of the book is a crash yeah. course. In yeah. What are the vaccines and why was it so difficult? And what's the science that led to it? And then how was it made? There was a very challenging supply chain problem. When you have 130, 140 companies developing the, running to develop the same vaccine and hundreds of companies trying to develop testing kits all after the same material. We talk about supply chain. Where do you get all this material? They need all these chemicals, all these compounds. They're all after the same. So how do they do it? How do they get enough monkeys to do the experiments? I mean, there's a whole story about how did they get the monkeys when China actually disallowed ex the biggest exporters of, of monkeys, disallowed exporting of monkey in the middle of this uh, uh, period. So how You're kidding. You, you need those for animal experiments on drugs before course, you move it to the human you phase. Need, you must have them. And oh, wow. I understand. There are so many things that kind of just talking to these people, I found out that were really fascinating. And, and they actually solved this problem because here, just one example for the monkeys. Companies, actually competing companies, competing pharmaceutical companies and competing labs cooperating with each other because what you have to do you, you give a, the monkey, you do, a, you do an experiment. So you give some of them, you give placebo. Some of them, you give, uh, you give the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. But what happened is, while each company gave their own vaccine, they share all the placebo group. That's uh, smart. Yes, smart, but it never happened before. That companies will share something. <laughs> but they all understood. They're competitors. Now they have absolutely. to cooperate. Yeah. Head-to-head -head competitors, yet they shared. So I, this is an example how... You know, in case of crisis, we can work together and, and share, share a lot. That is such a positive story. Yes, it is a positive story about it. And by the way, the, um, the scientists were sharing the, uh, uh, the genome of the, of the virus long before anybody even realized it. 
But anyway, so there were a lot of, um, so I, I talk about how the vaccine was, uh, uh, was developed, how it was then um, scaled up, which is very, mm-hmm. another story because it's one thing to make it at the lab, it's another story to make billions of it. And then talk about the last stage, you need to get into people's arms when you have a lot of people who are, you have disinformation campaign, you have people who are, you know, who don't want it. That's actually are- a question that I have for you, Professor Sheffi. Mm-hmm. Is is overcoming anti-vaxxers, or if you're not an outright anti-vaxxer, sort of just ambivalent because of, as you just said, um, disinformation and misinformation. Is that considered part of the supply chain, uh, supply network? Okay, it's a uh, look. Getting from the uh, warehouse where you have the vaccines to CVS or Walgreens, whatever to somebody's arm is part of the supply. The supply chain ends when the vaccine gets, in, gets into your arm. So in it's, essence, it is then, right? It is part of the supply chain. And this was a unique difficulty in, the, in, in getting the vaccine to the arm, in getting a shot in the arm, so to speak. The, the last difficulty was all these people. There were many other difficulties, by the way. So but with the, respect to this particular difficulty, I'm really intrigued. Did supply chain expert bringing the help of other experts to overcome this sort of? Yes, this because this had to do with communication, mm-hmm. you know, with messaging. So it's not strict supply chain um, expertise. There were other hurdles that require supply chain expertise, but this one, it was a question of messaging. I, I give example of around the world, how, how Israel fought it, how Singapore fought it, how uh, you know, other countries, France, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, did well or did not do well, when, what, when did it work, when did it not work. Um, the United States is still behind, honestly. It's, it's really too bad. But we I feel are, like sometimes our politics gets in the way of our innovation. This is an example of not even innovation. How can politics get in the way of public health? That's just beyond me. This is ridiculous. Yeah. But it is. It is when you have a, a leader who announces that uh, you know it's all a hoax. It didn't happen. In 15 days, it will be solved, and all this uh, stuff. So uh, it is what it is. And uh, like right now, if you want to to win a Republican primary. You have to acknowledge that the elections were stolen. You also have to to acknowledge that the whole COVID-19 is a hoax and the vaccines don't work. So you have to live in an alternate universe on, 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 you know, on many dimensions. So what can, it's, it's a difficult problem. It is, it is. And that, that, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is. I'm, I'm restraining myself not to comment on that. You're right. Particularly in the United States, when we hold the value of uh, personal choice and freedom and liberty, it's, it's a high regard. It's how you know the nation was founded, and it's still part of the ethos of the nation. But uh, other places, you know, got over it. <laughs> uh, Professor Sheffi, in, in, in your book, one of the things... Um, uh, that you talk about is how distributing this vaccine is similar to the moonshot in the 1960s. Um, now that you say that, um, I sort of, um, I have a smirk on my face because I just thought of this. For the moonshot, something that didn't affect us, 
it was a matter of pride. The nation got behind it. Yeah. But we're not doing that. <laughs> the nation is not getting behind something that could save our lives. Some of us are, but many of us are not. Yeah. I, I, compared to the moonshot, this is like a product launch. The moonshot, you got a lot of government money. Here you got to, you know, government money too. Was was involved not everywhere. Pfizer did not take government money. Moderna did take government. Doesn't matter. Uh, but government had to buy the uh, the vaccine. So there was government money. However, at the end of the day, the people who built the um, who went to the moon had to train dozens of astronauts. Had to wheel one good vehicle <laughs> and get it to one good one place. Yeah. Here we have to build tens of billions of stuff, test it, make sure that it works, freeze it all the way that it goes, you know, on its way everywhere, get reluctant, you know, customers to buy it. <laughs> it's difficult. It's much more difficult. As, a, as, as evident by the fact that they are only, what, 54% successful? And the moonshot were 100% successful. I mean, the way you explain it, uh, now that you explain it this way, uh, this is more difficult uh, than the moonshot. Yes, that's what I, I write in the book. It's more difficult than the moonshot. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm saying it for effect, of course, but of course, yeah. Hard. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the history of innovation in supply chain. We hope you are enjoying this podcast, and if you are then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Sheffi, how old is the modern concept of supply chain? I say modern because we've always had some sort of supply chain, supply network and ships and what have you. But at some point, it, it, supply chain acquires its own experts and professionals uh, and, and, and experts such as yourself, right? Okay, so first of all, Supply chains are as old as the hills. Supply chain existed in, in biblical time and well before that. Yeah. Uh, there were markets, and the minute that you have a buyer and a seller, you actually have a supply chain. Because when you went to the Babylon Shuk, you know, the marketplace, there were merchants that came in, well, they had to buy the stuff from somebody who made it, they had to, to, to get material from somebody. So there was supply chain behind them, and customer came in, and they had to to negotiate and buy and use it or sell it mm -hmm. in their country. So they always, uh, always uh, build supply chain. Um, the, the modern interest in supply chain, so supply chain came from, before supply chain, we were interested in logistics, which is basically transportation and storage of stuff. And this was basically a military discipline. Logistics was basically advanced in the military. It's a, you know, the Romans were 
you know, knew logistics very well. They built, if you look at uh, how they conquered England and went all the way up, you look, you look along, along the Rhine and every few, few miles, you see the uh, ruins of a warehouse, actually, that used to store food. Warehouse? Yeah. From Roman times. Along the, Rome, along the Rhine, there were old warehouses that, for storage. Maybe I should do that Viking cruise after all now. <laughs> yes. So it's uh, because they, they understood that in order to support a moving military, you need to feed the, the soldiers. They went with wives. They went with servants, whatever. Um, Napoleon lost, lost the... Uh, Napo and the Germans lost the war against the Russians because they cannot supply the troops. Yeah. So, uh, so this was always a military discipline. And the, anybody who studied the history of World War II knows the minute that the U.S. entered the war, the war was over. The Germans didn't realize it. Even the Brits didn't realize it. But the might of the production of the United States was unprecedented. The fact that the liberty ship were coming, you know, once a day. Of, <laughs> of once a day imagine that yeah yes airplane was coming out of the uh you know the uh ford the old ford plane old old it's now new ford plane in uh, willow run every hour there was a bomber b-17 coming off the production line nobody could match anything like this i mean it, it was just the the industry so the but in order to have bomber coming every hour from the supply chain, you have all the parts coming in and all the engine, all the propeller, everything that goes into a bomber coming in all, and it's all worked. I mean, it's because uh, the president, of course, got the uh, defense production act and just told people what to do. <laughs> yeah. And got some good logistics people in charge and they were able to do it. The, the modern concept of supply chain started when when what happened in, in, in manufacturing started bifurcating, it used to be the old River Rouge plant of Ford, for example, in the early uh, previous century, made everything. It had its own wood and made cars. So it went from the forest to finished car. It had its own aluminum plant and, and, and um, you know, still, still manufacturing. So it was kind of self-sufficient in that respect. Yes, self-sufficient. Then people realized that it's not efficient. It's much better if Ford would not make tires, but Michelin would make tires because they know that's the only thing they do and they know how to make it well. So what happens is instead of one company managing everything, over time, we broke it to a series of companies, each one expert in what it does, in the stage of manufacturing that it does, or making the parts that it does. So now we're starting to have a supply chain. And it started after World War II, I would say, uh, you know, in, in, in force after World War II. So we started to have a series of companies, one supplying other, supplying each one building another stage, another stage, another stage, and getting to the finished product. It started in, the, in 1978 when China joined the uh, World Trade Organization WTO, and, uh -huh. and opened up. People started getting to Asia and because, you know, uh, labor costs in, in, in Asia in general, in particular in China, were very low. So people started making building plants in China. The Chinese started building plants in China. The Chinese, of course, realizing the opportunity. 
and just insisted on technology transfer, in, increasing on you have to be a partner with a Chinese company and they can. I'm a former patent attorney, so that's extremely sensitive for me. You're right. Technology transfer. Give us your IP. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you want to sell here, you want to make it, give us your IP. Exactly. And companies, the market was too big and the, the, the course was too low, so they did it. Um, over time, of course, the Chinese market started developing internally. Now, now China is the second biggest market after the United States and then maybe the first soon. Uh, and also the Chinese became, it's, it, they're not low-cost manufacturer anymore. The costs in China are going up, but they're simply good. Very sophisticated manufacturing is done in China now. So, um, so, but in any case, this created very complex supply chain. Many, many stages of manufacturing, each done by a separate company, uh, one feeding another, one feeding another, with a lot of transportation and warehousing in between, whether by ship, by air, by truck, by rail, whatever. Um, so that's brought the supply chain become complex hard to manage and requiring a lot of uh, software optimization, a lot of mathematical optimization in order to make them efficient. That's what people like me do. So uh, um, you say people like we, uh, Professor Sheffy, when you started your academic career, was supply chain uh, uh, sort of a budding, uh, a fledgling uh, uh, discipline? It was. It was transportation, logistics, warehousing. This transportation and warehousing were the main element of, of logistics, and this mm -hmm. is what started. Then, and I was working in urban, my first book was urban transportation planning on transit system, optimizing highway and traffic lights and, and whatever, but then got frustrated. That, that book still applies today. Yeah, but nobody <laughs> listened to me. <laughs> because this, this all goes to the mayor office and they just throw it with uh, all other books that they get. So <laughs> throw it away. So I got frustrated, started working in the private sector. And lo and behold, you build a, meta, a better mousetrap and they use it. So as an engineer, for me, it's very satisfying. You know, um, they use your stuff. Speaking of uh, mousetraps, were there any technological innovations uh, along the um, development, uh, the evolution of supply chain that you think, oh, these two or these three really changed supply chain? The number one thing is the use of the internet. The ability uh... to get over long distances, the ability to send uh, electronic purchase order, electronic uh, you know, drawings, to change very quickly, to go back and forth. This enabled people in China to understand what people in Kansas City need and what, uh, and build the right. So this, if there's a number one, it's number one. There are many supporting technologies, but I would say this is the most important advances. It's uh, you know the the maturity of the internet and started to use all the app applications that are available on the internet, which was the main uh, driving force. Now, the, of course. Global positioning system. Now you have sensors in in, uh, in, uh, in packages and in shipments, and you can follow them throughout the world. You know, yeah, yeah. you know where they are. Now you have data on something that is being sold because of the point and sale uh, system. That everything that's being sold in the supermarket is being scanned, uh, scanned in a barcode, and immediately you know what your inventory is and what you should order immediately. So. 
all of these things. That's however, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> all, of these, all of these things, but I would say the number one thing. So the barcodes and RFID later are simply data collection system. They are sensors, basically data collection system. But being able to get all this data and analyze and take immediate action based on this data is uh, brought a lot of efficiency. And then there are some there are concepts that brought a lot of efficiency. Concepts. The Toyota Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. A, well, I should go back before the the, the, the Ford production line was uh, being able to make the Ford uh, the Model T. The assembly line. The assembly line. Yeah. It was you know a huge advancement at the time and brought the price of car down significantly. The use of containers later on, McLean and and, and the use of containers. Are you talking about shipping containers? Shipping containers. Oh, wow, yeah. The same container that go on the ship, on the rail, on the the truck. So you don't have to open it and change it and unload it one pallet at a time, one 50-pound sack at a time. You go the whole container. You move with a huge crane. You move the whole container. And ships now getting 20,000, 22,000 containers on one ship. Very efficient. Uh, So all of this efficiency and the... Innovation help create the modern supply chain. So it's. What do you think is the weakest link in our modern supply net- network? Uh, that's a that's a loaded question. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> that's a loaded question. I'll tell you why. Because by and large, I think that um, until now, until. Um, this year, supply chain actually did not fail. Supply chain had a lot of problems, a lot of hurdles. Until this year, it did not fail. I would argue that they did not. In fact, even during the pandemic, supply chains worked unbelievably well. Let me give you one example. The food supply chain. Can you imagine this whole huge supply chain? Millions of people involved, millions of companies involved in it, in Mm -hmm. all stages, and from one day to the next, all restaurants are closed. All universities are closed. All uh, you know, uh, industrial parks are closed. That's half the food. Yeah. Half, the other half goes to the supermarket, but the 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 uh, factories that used to supply, uh, you know, restaurants and university cannot divert because the whole packaging system. They are packaging in huge, fifty kilo, hundred pound sacks. That's not what sells in the supermarket. They have to package it in small packages with all the nutrition information. All exactly. That's not how families buy it, consume it. They, yeah. They don't have the machinery for this. Yet, let's in the height of the pandemic, nobody went, went hungry. Sometimes, and the, the newspaper made a big deal out of it. Oh, my God, we don't have meat. We don't have eggs. We don't have this. We don't have that. We never ran out of food. I mean, some, you're right. Think about this. What... What an amazing achievement. Look, in, in the previous book, I documented how people ran, you know, 24-7, you know, to make sure that you, the customer, would not see any shortages. People did a lot of things to make it happen. But uh, so I think supply chain actually worked. And you have, and before we even had the, the Japan disaster and the, you know, hurricanes. We always have hurricanes that close ports and close mm-hmm. the... Uh, by and large, the consumer doesn't feed, or ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal. So what? It, it's really not no big deal until until now, because what's happening now 
is starting compounding effect, as I said. Compounding it, effect as in caused by our demand? Yes. The demand goes to the roof. Supply cannot pick up. People get, companies and people get concerned. They start over-ordering. They make the situation worse. We have problem with uh, uh, workers. They start demanding more salary. They start, some of them just decide to stay home. The big resignation waves make the situation worse. Expectation of inflation now will make the situation worse. So we now have feedback loops that feed on each other and make the situation worse. And this is, um, this is unprecedented in peacetime. Unprecedented. In peacetime. Um, I, Professor Sheffi, I thought I asked a, a very simple question, but you're right. And now that you explained it, it's actually pretty complex. It is loaded. Complex. Yeah. Uh, why don't we take a short break here? Stay with me and Professor Sheffi as we get into the perspective. Professor Sheffi, from time to time we hear in our news sort of talks and sometimes there's a little bit of blustering about repatriating uh, America's supply chain, bring it back home, make everything here in America. Uh, I'm trying to mimic him. I'm not making fun of him. Uh, one, does that make a difference? And two, I guess my second question should be my first question. Is that even possible? Can you make everything in America and make us like a self-sufficient supply network company? The answer is no. <laughs> with, with an exclamation mark. Yeah. Just uh, naive to talk this way uh, because it means people who don't understand supply chain, think about, okay, I'm a company, I'm buying from a supplier. So I have, you know, a thousand suppliers, I'll move all of them to the United States. The problem with each one of these suppliers also has a thousand suppliers. And now you have to move a million to the United States. And each one of these millions also have a thousand suppliers. So now you have to move, it's not, a, to move a whole, to move this supply chain or supply chain, you have to move a whole ecosystem of hundreds of millions of people. That's the people who are involved in China in doing well, it. If so you for, did that, which may not even be possible, but theoretically, if you did that, would that increase jobs? Would that even be a good thing for us? No, because we don't have the people to do it. As it is, we don't have people to do the work. That's true. But, That's true. But there's also other problem with it. First of all, if we do it and start saying, okay, we do everything in-house, other, other nations will do the same. We also found with the tariffs that people retaliate, always. So that means uh, it reduces our exports. Of course. Yeah. Everybody yeah. will do it, which means it reduces our markets and everybody else's markets. And because we will say, buy American, it's made in America, buy American. So the Brit will say, buy, buy British. And the German will say, buy German, of course. And the Canadian will say, buy Canadian. They will say it. So what happens is everybody gets a smaller market. Economies of scale takes a hit, costs go up, innovation now suffers because you have less competition, so less need to innovate. It's bad on all accounts. It's bad. It's, bad <laughs> it's not it's bad. bad. It's devastating. It's a disaster. It's devastating on, on, on all accounts. It's, it's an idea that should, should never have come. Now, 
Let me, however, take the answer is really should be more nuanced because uh-huh. there are elements that involve with national security. So we have to think about we we need chips. We need chips for our, you know fighter jets and drones and satellites and cell phones. Yeah, we, but I'm talking about the military, even the military. Yeah. And we cannot assume that in case we'll get a real tiff with China, they'll keep supplying us with everything that we need. Or, or, or they will <laughs> Why let, would they if we're in a war with them, right? Or, they, or, or that they will let Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor Company is the largest chip manufacturer in the world. Yeah. It's not going to be hard for China to bomb Taiwan. Yeah. I mean, it's a, they may do it anyway, but it's a, just, it. just for the fun of it. But it's... A, um, so... We cannot. So there are elements, but in order to do it, we have to have so many things here. We come back to the environmental issue. We need rare earth material. China is supplying 90% of the world rare That's earth right, material. Yeah. Do you realize that the United States has as much rare earth material in the ground as China has? But our environmental law don't allow us to mine it because it's really dirty to mine this stuff. So we're not mining it. So, okay, so we live in a pristine environment and we we may be ruled by China. So it's, you know, that's what I'm saying. Think about all the implications. You don't allow mining of rare earth minerals. And now uh, the F-35 will have to have Chinese chips in it, which who knows what they put in it. But it's it's just, it's not tenable. So it's a... There are some elements that are national security. Certain elements of um, of medical supplies need yeah. to have, but it's not just the, the factory in the United States. This is meaningless. You need all the suppliers in the United States, the raw material in the United States, you need the entire supply chain in the United States. So this is a massive, massive endeavor. And by the way, most of the talk this way is to getting out of China, getting out, you know, there's one thing the Democrat and Republican agree on is they all hate China. So, well, <laughs> yeah. they, also, they also all hate Facebook. But aside from this, <laughs> they all hate China. So it's, so it's, it's another element. Companies cannot leave China. China is the second largest market in the world and maybe soon to be the first. And they're becoming more and more nationalistic. If you want to sell in China, you have to build in China. So companies will have to build, still build in China. So it's it's not an easy solution. And by the way, let me add the last thing. The one thing that really, I have lots of friends in Mexico, and it could have been Mexico's finest hour if AMLO, if the president, would have been normal. But he is... Uh, he seems to be very sort of left-leaning socialistic. Am I characterizing? He's, he's about 200 miles left of Stalin. So it's, uh, <laughs> oh it's, boy! Socialistic. He does not believe in business. He wants to nationalize major industries. He's nuts. Because why am I saying this? That's what people don't see. This could be the opportunity for Mexico. Mexico has yeah. lots of workers, lots of raw materials, lots Prox- of proximity to us. Proximity to the United States and Canada. Raw they material. Could, yeah. It would have been within. Five years, they could have get themselves to a European level. But because of these leftist policies and the threat, continuous threat to nationalize industries that people don't want to invest in, in you know, 
uh, in Mexico. Can some, you blend some, in, invest in something, and, and next thing you know, it's going nowhere because government is involved? I don't. I, I don't blame them. I'm just saying it's it's. My heart is aching. I have lots of yeah. friends in Mexico. They all we're all talking about it all the time. That Mexico is losing is losing unbelievable opportunities. It's, it's it's a missed opportunity. Uh, I'm so glad you shared that. That's a great point. Um, do you think there there's a, any? Do you think we can find a silver lining in this supply network crisis? Maybe okay. a country like Mexico stepping up, or I don't know, something. Yes. Well, let me talk about the silver lining in the pandemic in general and my last book, The uh, um, Abnormal, The New. Oh, a Shot in the Arm. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. So let me talk. First of all, during the pandemic, one thing became very uh, common, and this is a, a virtual healthcare being able to see your doctor virtually. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a game changer as far as the developing world because the fact that a, a sick person in Botswana can see the best doctor in Massachusetts General Hospital, which is one of the best in, yeah. in the world, is a game changer. And the fact that, that technology was developed before though, right? Uh, I know, but it became commonplace. It became now. now uh, yes. Everybody knows about it. Yes, the technology was before that. But now they do it on Zoom. Who ever heard about Zoom before the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. let me tell you another thing that has to do with the development of the vaccine, which is in my last book. I believe that the development of vaccine shows us, which is as the title of my book, that science, engineering, supply chain can work together to achieve, to tackle other global problems. So let me give example about one example about global warming right? Global warming and the pandemic have a lot in common. They're both global. The fact that uh, Southern California is changing its environmental law is meaningful, meaningless as far as the, as the planet is concerned. It's not going to affect the planet as long as India is building coal fire, coal fire plant, you know, yeah. once a week. It's meaningless. Um, the pandemic is the same. If we are vaccinating just the United States and not vaccinating, you know, Africa and every other country, we're not going to get rid of the pandemic. We have to vaccinate the world, or at least get to herd immunity for the world. Another thing is that customers are not willing to participate. What do I mean by this? They're not willing to participate both in the global warming narrative as well as the vaccine. Yes, I get vaccine. okay. Exactly. In global warming, you do you do a poll in you do a poll at. Uh, you know, we did it here in Boston. Everybody, when I wrote, I wrote a previous book on uh, called. Uh, what was the title of that book? The, uh, Balancing Green. Balancing, Balancing Green. Green. Okay. And show that customers, despite the fact that they talk to test to sell to pollster, of course, are we to pay ten percent more for a, you know, sustainable product in the supermarket? It's about seven percent. Uh, that are willing to pay more for. And that's, by the way, in Massachusetts, one of the most progressive states in the nation. Wait, I'm sorry. So you're saying that even though in the survey, they're saying we're, play, will, we're willing to pay up to 10%, when it comes to practice, to real effect, they only do it up to 7%. Is that what no. you were saying? No. no. Oh, I misunderstood. Please. 70 uh, to 80% of the people say they're willing to pay more. Uh -huh. 7 to 8% of the people are actually doing this. Oh, I see. I see. I see. And that's, yeah. by the way, in Boston, 
in Massachusetts, one this of the most more... progressive states in the nation. This exactly. is not something that was taken in Arkansas, right? Yeah. It was taken in, in Massachusetts. Now, so my, just to, uh, to finish the thought, and, and, and we know that people, in, in, um, if people are not willing to do it, and we saw what happened in France, they tried to put, in, the French government tried to put carbon tax and yellow vest, Paris was burning. The Australian government failed. The, the, yeah, yeah. the battle cry was X the tax. The, the Australian government, people are just not willing to do it. So companies cannot do it in spade, can't do it really because the customers are not willing to pay for it. So not, they can do things on the margin, but not really change the business uh, the way they do it. And I can have you give you examples, many examples of this. And actually, government will not do it because they're going to be voted out. So the question is, what do you do? In, 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 uh, uh, so we cannot do it. In global warming, it doesn't work. We know the vaccine, it doesn't work. A large part of the population is not willing to get vaccinated. And it's, and it's hopeless in the sense if people are not willing to do something for their own and their family's health in the face of a deadly disease, how can you expect them to reduce their standard of living for a danger that may be decades from now? Carbon neutral, yeah, energy and all of that. Yeah, that's, that's not, not even not, visible. Yeah. That's just not going to do it. Not going to do it. So the solution, as I argue in my book, Balancing Green, is technology. So let me go back first to the pandemic. The solution was technology, the vaccines. And not only the vaccine, there are waves of technology. It was, you know, the vaccines and now booster vaccine. And now Merck came out with a pill that you can give uh, when you start seeing. We will have both pharmaceutical um, help when you get sick and better and better vaccines before you get sick. This is a technological solution. And there may be others. We also had the first wave of technological solutions for global warming. This was all the renewables. You know, there were about 17% of the uh, energy in the United States is made by, uh, by renewables. But renewables are limited. You can only, you know, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow and people don't like them in their backyard. They take a lot of land. It's limited. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm saying there will be another wave of technological uh, innovation in uh, regarding global warming. And this will be what's called carbon capture and sequestration. We need not only to reduce the emission, which is everything that we are trying to do, fly less, consume less, you know, just reduce emission. We try to take emission from the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, we try to take it out. And there are ways of doing it, capturing from the atmosphere and burying it. It just, it works in the lab. It just doesn't work in scale yet. However, as I said, if we get the same effort, a tenth of the effort that we put in fighting the pandemic, on finding a solution for global warming, all the cooperation, all the trillions of government money, all the research and development in order to be able to capture the CO2 already, or the, the uh, greenhouse gas already up in there, I, I believe that we will, we will be able to do it. Unfortunately, it will require a real disaster like Shanghai, which is at sea level going underwater, or New York going underwater, or something like this. God forbid, yeah. For us to realize that it's real. And uh, so companies will stop, you know, the little things that they're doing that they're just literally greenwashing and start doing... Real so maybe a disaster, hopefully it won't come to that, but a disaster 
and that only becomes the impetus for uh, sort of mass scale technological innovation, but it also makes the communication more forceful and immediate. I believe governments, this is one thing that governments can do. Governments can fund the R&D to create technological solution whether people like it or not. The governments did not ask, even the the, uh, Trump government did not start the uh, warp speed project to develop the vaccine. They didn't ask people if they want to do it. They just funded it. They just did it. And by the way, regardless of my feeling about Trump, this administration should get credit for doing this. Yeah, they did funded this development and, and it did come out in work speed so good for them um, so we need to do a similar effort by multiple government the EU the United States maybe China China is doing a lot of stuff now trying to uh, to reduce its emissions develop a technology or set of technologies that will help take carbon out from the atmosphere because one last point, we have large part, two-thirds of the world are still living on less than $5 a day. Guess what? They want to have air conditioning. They want to have cars. They want to eat meat. They want all the things that we have. So and more we- carbon emission is still coming. Oh, most of it is still <laughs> only in the future. It's not even so, untapped yet. Yeah. Exactly. So, and so one option is to do, to tell them, too bad, guys, you're never going to get it because we like it and we have it and you don't, which kind of doesn't seem like morally a good a good point to stand it on. It may even lead to rebellions and revolutions. Of course. It, yeah. it's, just, it's just wrong. Yeah. Just wrong. Can't do it. So much better before we get waves of immigration and other problems that can start with a real global warming phenomena, start investing in technology that can reduce the carbon already in the air. And they exist. They exist. Uh, Professor uh, Sheffi, in closing, um, I just um, we spent some time on environment. Is this uh, something that is already being discussed and implemented in the supply network, uh, like uh, ships or trucks? I think you already alluded to it. For example, trucks that yeah. will be electrical but then again as you said that's in california what's Cal- what is california going to do when you have a coal uh, burning plants popping up in india but it's not, Ever- not even that honestly uh, you see by the way california let's take california because you live there uh-huh. with all this environmental law got you know blackouts we I mean, how long people are going to stand for this? It is basically... Sore subject. Yes, you're right. No, it's basically a reduction in the standard of living in the name of environmental law. So, yeah, okay. It has to be a balance. Uh, what I'm saying is, guys, uh, maybe even Californians at that point will get, will get sick of it, but <laughs> depending how bad, how, how, bad, uh, how bad it will get. I mean... Uh, Bill Maher, of course, makes fun of California. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I watch those shows. Um, Professor Sheffi, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. 
We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At ThePeel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.